Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Jessica Sabo is a former classical ballet dancer and writer whose work focuses on the intersection between eating disorders, trauma, and sexuality. Her poems and essays have appeared in publications by 805 Lit and Art, Inklet Magazine, and the Dead Mule School of Southern Literature, among others. Her work has been anthologized with Channel Maker Literary Journal, Adelaide Literary Magazine, Damaged Goods Press, and is forthcoming with Quill Keepers Press. Jessica was selected as a finalist for the Adelaide Literary Award in Poetry in 2020, and is also the author of a chapbook, A Body of Impulse, Dancing Girl Press and Studio 2021. A West Coast transplant and a Virginian at heart, she currently lives in Southern Nevada with her wife and two rescue dogs, one of which has wings. Jessica, welcome to the uh, Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Happy to have you. Thank you so much, James. I'm happy to be here. Well, the very first line of your chapbook sets a raw and emotional tone. I have been for sale since birth. That really struck me. How hard was it to share the emotions you capture in this chapbook? Um, it was definitely a journey um, in sharing those emotions. Um, they they came from uh, a place that it really took a lot of courage um, to bring to the forefront. Um, there are certain poems that were easier to write than others. Um, as you can see, each um, section is comprised of about five or six poems. And um, that poem specifically, um, I knew I had to make an impact um, somehow. I had to set the tone for the reader. I wanted them to know what they were getting into with that first line. Um, so it was both it was both easy and difficult, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I thought that, that that first line perfectly set the tone for the chapbook. Uh, your chapbook also has dance references woven into the into multiple mm -hmm. poems. For example, you write all bouncing curl and pointed toes and, and multiple other references. Uh, how did you think about balancing personal and even autobiographical experiences with pure invention in your poetry? That's a great question. Um, it... My work comes from a place where um, I talk a lot about um, who I used to be as a dancer um, and who I am now as a former dancer, as an executive, um, as navigating, um, you know, a lot of different issues. And um, it, it's definitely, it was a challenge trying to communicate um, my childhood, my adolescence, my adulthood, um, really narrowing in on those specific events that shaped those different parts of my life, while also um, trying to be creative with my words and really create imagery um, from those memories, some of which were 20, 30 years old. It was definitely a challenge, but I truly enjoyed 
um, I truly enjoyed the work and the challenge. No, I think what's interesting about poetry is there are many autobiographical experiences that we weave into our poems, but there's also mystery. It's not explicit. You know, poetry avoids being so explicit as this is the truth, this is invention. And did you, I haven't actually, I, I didn't write this down. I'm just thinking this down. Did you get any qualms about where you had to veer into invention to maintain the poetry and steer away from what actually happened? Or was it more you focused on the poetry and used your your reality as a source of inspiration? Um, I used my reality as a huge source of my inspiration. Um, obviously some of the um some of the in the, some of the imagery um was i wouldn't say it was invention but some of the some of the injury of the i'm sorry some of the imagery was um based more on photographs that i've that i'd look at on accounts from um you know certain family members um on experiences that i remember as a child, you know, bits and pieces, and then I'd string it together. Now, some of the other poems in the chapbook are based 100% on um, memory. Um, a lot of the poems in there recount specific events in my life where I do remember every minute detail. Mm -hmm. um, so those, I don't want to say those um, came more easily. Um, they were actually harder to write because, you know, when you're trying to input every detail and be so specific and you know you want to infuse every every detail you can into the writing sometimes that's more painful mm -hmm, <laughs> than mm -hmm. using um imagery um so i think that the chapbook combined both um both types of, of poems both types of approaches so you've kind of touched on this a little bit but let's go a little deeper so what how would you describe your writing process how you go from an idea mm -hmm. to words to a fully formed poem to the extent any poem can ever be fully formed <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right even now i look back at some of the poems and i think there you know there would be certain ways i would rewrite it now <laughs> um so writing is definitely rewriting um as they say my writing process um it depends on what I'm writing about, to be honest, James. If I'm writing about something from childhood, then I normally um, I normally have a more casual process where I think about what I want to write about. I think about the memories, what I was feeling at the time, um, you know, how I feel now as an adult looking back on those memories, which impacts my writing significantly. But then I also have a writing process where if I'm talking about something that happened in my adulthood where I, again, I have a very clear um, memory of it, then I do more of an outline, um, but it's still a loose outline. I'll sit down and I'll just write it all the way out. I won't look too much at the structure. I won't look at the grammar. Sometimes I don't even look at the spelling. <laughs> I just try to get it out. Um, so that that way I have a shell of a story that I can really mold into something more artistic and something more creative. So your book is rich with beautiful and powerful lines. One example that I particularly liked was, I never saw a shade of black like the one you wore, deeper than the blooming bruises, heavy like the chill that crept into your home when I knew there was no saving to be done. 
So how do you decide when to stop revising and editing a poem? What are your sources of feedback and critique? Um, a very large source of feedback for me um, actually comes from my wife, Shannon. Um, she's read every single poem that's in this chapbook, and she's heard me read um, probably 70 or 80 poems um, to her because I value her feedback more than anyone else's. Um, and the subject matter speaks to that as well. Um, I also, you know, when I started out writing poetry um, about three and a half years ago, I knew that I wanted to be published like as soon as possible, not just so I could, you know, have publishing credits, but I wanted feedback from professionals. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that with a lot of the rejections that I'd receive, um, I'd also get a lot of feedback from the editors and from the poetry readers. And I took that and I, it was hard at first, <laughs> obviously, you know, when you get that, um, that sting of rejection, but I really took that feedback and I looked at my work and I looked at where I could improve. And um, sometimes I would put a poem away for a month, two months, three months, and then I'd come back and it would allow me to more clearly see where I needed to, to work on it. So feedback came from, from those submittals as well and those rejections. You know, essentially my wife is also my first line of editing and I'm part of a poetry <laughs> critique group now. And I think I misread the first line that I love so much. I want to make sure I correct that or it's going to bug me. And I, maybe I read it right. I'm going to have to go back and listen. I never saw a shade of black like the one that wore you. I think I reversed. Yeah. I think I reversed it when I read it. And that just it's going to bug me if I don't, as a <laughs> poet, okay. every word matters. So I, I was thinking, I think I misread that. I have to fix that. All right. So structuring and ordering a collection of poems is challenging because in mm -hmm. most cases, the poems weren't written with a collection in mind. I'm very curious to know, you know, when I finish this question, if, that, if that's not the case here. But, you know, they weren't written with a collection in mind. They were written over time. How did you settle on the ordering of the poems in your book, the sections and how they were named, which I think works extremely well? Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, it took a long time to piece together this chapbook. Um, like you said, I didn't write these poems in order and so when it came time to you know put everything together it was a daunting task and something that took a long time um you know the chapbook is about trauma and mental illness and what my journey has been thus far in life dealing with both um you know it's about living with an eating disorder and being faced with death and ultimately choosing life and so i knew that i wanted to have certain sections that spoke to those to those moments in my life. Um, so the three sections of the book, we have Cradle, um, which is the first section that's um, more so related to my childhood. Um, those are poems that speak to not only my development as, um, as a child, but also my eating disorders development. You know, where did it come from? Um, how did it develop into the disorder that it was when I was a teenager and when I was an adult. Um, the second section called Marrow, um, I like to kind of call that the the meat <laughs> of the chapbook. Um, those are poems that describe the the ugliness of, of mental illness, you know, what is hidden from society. Um, it describes the, the war in trying to survive while you're slowly killing yourself, which is what I was doing. Um, and then the third section is is clamor. Um, so those are poems that speak to the the rawness of recovery, 
the unlearning that you have to go through when you're trying to survive an eating disorder and also the, the forgiveness that you have to give yourself, which is definitely something that, you know, I work on every day. So that perfectly leads into my next question. And I'm thinking of the uh, the poem, uh, What I Should Have Said Instead of Nothing in particular. Mm -hmm. So uh, I imagine that your poetry has resonated and connected with readers suffering from who suffer currently or who or have suffered from similar challenges. What have you learned from the feedback you've gotten from readers? Um, the feedback that I've gotten from readers has been positive. Um, people feel represented. They feel visible. And for people suffering with anorexia and bulimia, you know, we try to be invisible. And so to have work that represents us and to have work that calls out the the realness you know society has its own ideas and and um demonstrations of an eating disorder but everyone's experience is so different so the the feedback that i've gotten from people that i know who are in recovery or who are struggling or you know who have had disordered eating that um that may not fall into a specific category of an eating disorder um they just appreciate my honesty and my candor. Um, I've always been really vocal about my struggle, my journey, who I am, because I mean, if I can convince one person that they aren't alone, that someone else knows what it's like to to deal with, you know, this this monster, then I've done my job as a person, as a poet, and as a survivor. No, I think that's what's uh, something magical about poetry is it can a poem can be ba based in something very personal and or an idea that's very that appears on the surface to be very small, but because poetry gets to the emotional core of something so effectively that then it resonates so much more broadly um, than maybe an essay on the same topic ever possibly could. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly uh, your book was just a very powerful uh, journey to read. Um, as someone who hasn't had Thank to struggle you. with an eating disorder, and yet I could feel the emotion and the the, the challenge, the pain of it, and the the fear and the 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 extreme. It just it just it really it's a very powerful empathy generating read. So. Thank you so much, James. Um, so, uh, you know, what was your, I mean, you talked about, you know, getting, you know, the, getting, trying to get just a poem placed and the reject, the, the 98% or whatever the her, the horrific stat is, uh, rejection rate, and then getting some feedback along the way. So what was your journey to have your chapbook, which is not just one poem, but a whole collection of poems uh, selected and published? Yeah. So when i started writing poetry was which i think was like in 2018 i knew that long term i wanted to you know i wanted to get some single poem credits and i knew i wanted to do a chapbook and then you know obviously go on into a, a full-length collection so um after about 70 or 80 poems i thought to myself okay i think maybe i have enough here to do a chapbook right like mm -hmm. 16 18 poems and what happened is i actually went through my entire collection and i found that i was missing like you know i wrote all these poems but none of them not all of them fit together mm -hmm. and i knew what i wanted my theme to be about i knew i wanted to write about my experience um with anorexia and bulimia and, and how I came out the other side. And I didn't have enough work that was 
prevalent to that specific subject. So I actually put it on the back burner for about a year and a half. Uh And I started working on more poems that really addressed the different parts of my life, you know, through childhood, through adolescence, through adulthood. Um, And not just talking about my experience, but also talking about the other, the experiences of others that that really changed how I looked at myself and my life and my, and, and my own mental health. Um, so it took about another year and a half to really have a set of poems, um, to be able to put together, even though that, you know, there are only 15 or 16 in this chat book. It it took a lot longer than I expected, but I'm really glad that it did because I think that it made me a better writer Mm -hmm. realizing early on that I just didn't have a good enough body of work. And then in terms of just the, uh, when you had that, that, that foundational set of poems that you were confident about, um, sending out, you know, what was your process of actually finding a home for it? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time looking at, um, publishers whose, whose goals aligned with my own. You know, I wanted to make sure that I went with a press that championed female writers. Um, I wanted to go with a press that, um, that spoke to um, writers who were going through um, trauma. And so I narrowed it down to about five or six presses. Um, I submitted it to three presses and then it was chosen by Dancing Girl, um, which was my number one choice. I I have a couple chapbooks from that press and um, you know, the, the writers that Dancing Girl represents are, are phenomenal. And um, I thought that I would fit really well in that group of writers based on the subject matter and and who I was as a writer. Cool. Well, I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read a selection from your book now, and then we'll talk about it. These are the things we don't talk about after Caitlin Conlon. The warning signs. The morning my spine caved like a confession paralysis and bone tapping, funeral planning at 22, what I did with the remains, the way I left things emptied, how I am empty, how quickly flowers bloom, how slowly a body dies, shadow play, why I stopped dancing, my first love, the graveyard I still visit, the day I will go blind, the day she caught me arms parallel to the floor. The year my flesh became a stinging welt, the aftermath. How small I made myself for love. Why I don't want children. The guilt that comes with that statement. Why I am still homesick. The night I drove through the hills of Los Angeles. What I found there. The ghosts I still cling to. 21 years of war. The waste. How hard it still is to forgive. That's such a beautiful, powerful poem. I want you to try to describe what this poem looks like, because I think there, in in my um, interview with Olivia Gatwood uh, in an earlier episode, we talked about what a poem looks like, what it sounds like, and they can be two very different experiences, particularly in in, uh, some of the poems that she recites live. So describe what this poem looks like, which I think works really well, given the series of short, direct statements, and how the poem evolved into this final form from what, from its earliest beginnings. Yeah. Um, so at first glance, the, the poem looks like a list. It, it reads like a list. Um, 
but it's much more than a list. <laughs> um, when I when I first read the poem that was originally by Caitlin Conlon, the, the um, title really caught me. Um, these are the things we don't talk about. And I thought that was a really interesting title for a poem. Um, so I sat with it for a while and I looked at my own life. Um, you know, as a, a writer, as a poet, there are certain things, you know, the most important or the most um, impactful events in our life we want to write about, we want to share with the world. Um, but in my experience, I had a really difficult time writing about those events because I just wanted everything to be so perfect. I wanted every detail to be there. Um, you know, I had tried writing these events in essay form and it just became so daunting to try to communicate these significant impactful events. And so I thought about these things that I wouldn't write about. And these things were my things that I don't talk about mm -hmm. because I don't write about them. And so that's really where the poem came from. Um, you know, these, some of these items are, are things I've never really talked about to anyone besides, you know, my wife, Shannon, um, you know, funeral planning at 22, for example. Um, 22 was one of my darkest years where not only I was dealing with, you know, my eating disorder, but I was also dealing with uh, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, um, you know, self-harm. It was a really, really dark time for me. And I, and I don't really bring that part of my life to light. Um, but in this poem, I could, I didn't have to expand on it. I didn't have to explain it. It was enough just to bring it into a poem. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the poem is about. No, I thought it was unspeakable moments to light. I think it, it it was so much more powerful with with the, this is what poetry can do so beautifully is you can have such a tiny hint of detail and then the reader can take it in a direction that is personal to them, even if it's different than what was personal to poets. So I thought it was very effective and the and the way you visualized it, I thought it was very effective. So how do you approach reciting your poetry, especially poems that draw from such uh, personal source material? Reciting poetry is something I'm still working on. Um, the way that it sounds in my head and the way that I speak it are usually two very different things. <laughs> so um, I spend a lot of time trying to think about the way to to speak the words in in the most impactful way. Um, so with certain items from this poem, they're they're read with with pauses at both the front and the back end with, with other parts of this poem, they're read in succession one after the other. Um, so I really, I really try to break down the poem and I, I try to make sure that when I am reciting a poem, I'm doing it in the most impactful way and in the most concise way, which I think is also a, something that's hard to do, especially when you have a poem that's kind of, kind of a run on where it doesn't have a clear, beginning and a clear end, um, you want to make sure that you allow the reader the time to really process what you're saying. And that's something that I try to work on a lot. Um, because when I first started reciting, I would just go a mile a minute, <laughs> just trying to get through it. And I realized when I would listen to myself that I wasn't doing the poem justice. 
So why did you choose this poem in particular to read? And I ask that because there are definitely go-to poems in my book that I prefer to read, either because I enjoy reading them or because I've figured out that they resonate more when read out loud, because um, not all poems work as well read out loud. So what, what in particular did you choose this poem? Um, I honestly, this is the poem that, um, all the other poems in this chapbook were published well before this poem. Um, mm -hmm. it took me two and a half years to get this specific poem published. And so I knew I wanted to share it on the podcast, um, because it honestly has out of all the poems in this chapbook, it has the most meaning to me. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to what we we talked about with bringing these moments into the forefront that, you know, I haven't really, I haven't been able to to write about. I haven't been able to talk about um, as freely as, as uh, other parts of my life. And so I wanted to challenge myself um, to share this poem, which, which houses, you know, the events that, that I think really shaped me into who I am today. That's why I chose it. Terrific. Well, finally, what advice do you have for listeners who are just starting to write poetry or who are tempted to write their first poem? Um, I would say it sound it might sound silly, but embrace the embrace the poor writing that is going to be your first draft, your second draft, your tenth draft, your twentieth draft. Um, it's okay not to get it right the first time. And that was something that I didn't really understand when I started writing poetry. You know, I had been a, a, a memoir writer and an essayist, and I thought poetry would, would translate into the same type of writing where I could just do one or two drafts and I'd, and I'd get it. But that's not what poetry is. And you have to be okay in sitting with the, the sentence that just isn't right with the word that you just can't think of um, with the subject. That's just so hard to get out on paper. You have to be comfortable with that in order to improve as a writer, as a poet, as, as an artist. So that's the advice that I would give. Just be okay with not being the best at first. <laughs> that's, that's great advice. Well, Jessica, I want to thank you so much for joining the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. And I encourage everyone to check out your chapbook, A Body of Impulse. Links in the show notes, or you can find it on Google search. It's uh, it's a it's a powerful, powerful, valuable read that will, whether or not you've experienced the things that the chapbook covers, you will have empathy and a deeper understanding um, from the read. So thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate it. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.